The Future of Calvinism by Herman Bavink. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The year 1892 was a year of great importance for the Reformed Churches of the Netherlands. Two influential groups of churches, both originating in a secession from the established church, the one in 1834, the other in 1886, were, after long negotiations brought together, and in June of that year held their first general synod of the Reformed churches in the Netherlands. For various reasons this event has excited considerable interest. It was something unforeseen and unexpected. Both groups, to be sure, were one in their confession and form of government, and both shared the conviction that a reformed Christian was in duty bound to his Bible and his confession to break with the established church. Still, concerning the method of reformation, i.e. the manner in which this breach ought to be brought about, there existed an appreciable difference of opinion. This difference in method gave rise to the different attitudes which the two sides assumed in relation to the property of the established church and the civil authorities. The Christian Reformed Church, originating in the secession of 1834, had gradually come to consider itself as an entirely new church, and as having broken off all connection with both the governing bodies and the individual members of the establishment. Consequently, it raised no claim in the civil courts to retain or recover the property of the established church, and presented itself to the civil authorities as a new and different organization. On the other hand, the so-called Netherland Reformed Churches, born from the movement of 1886, were averse to the idea of separation, and, while favouring that of reformation, considered themselves as the old original churches which had merely renounced obedience to the illegal synodical government imposed by the civil powers in 1816, and had returned to the old form of government approved at Dort in 1619, and since then never lawfully set aside. They objected to being regarded as a new organisation, side by side with the established church, and claimed to be the identical churches that in the sixteenth century had adopted the reformation and that now for equally valid if not more valid reasons repudiated the control of the synodical body in conformity with this position they brought action in the civil courts to uphold their claim and title to all church property and in view of the refusal of the authorities to concede this claim designated themselves as dolerende i e as making complaint of the injustice done them by the civil power these differences though not in any direct way connected with the confession were nevertheless of a serious nature owing to them the negotiations with a view to union with their separated brethren which the churches of eighteen eighty six had immediately opened led to no result except that on both sides misunderstandings and exaggerations in reference to the position of the other party began to increase at more than one time it seemed as if all efforts to bring about a union were to fail instead of coming closer together the churches were drifting apart and yet notwithstanding all these discouraging signs at the synods of leeuwarden and the hague a provisional basis of union was agreed upon in eighteen ninety two contrary to almost universal expectation nay notwithstanding the hopes and the avowed opposition of many from without the union itself was concluded both here and abroad this result has attracted attention the interest shown by many may have sprung from a secret dread of the growing influence of calvinism we know that there are others with whom it was inspired 
by a warm love for the reformed principles and whom it led to thank god for having at the decisive moment kept hearts and minds in his peace and reunited those that were brethren of the same house none can deny that by this union calvinism has once more secured a firm foothold in the netherlands and attained a significance which while easily exaggerated by some is just as likely to be underestimated by others this remarkable phenomenon that calvinism should be restored in some degree to its former state of prosperity has led many to ask whether calvinism has a future there are but few who will at this late day credit calvinism with any degree of vitality according to the majority it has long passed its prime is antiquated and ready to vanish nay already dead and honourably buried but our thoughts sometimes differ from god's thoughts the remarkable reveille of calvinism in holland may at least be considered to justify an inquiry whether it is capable of a further and richer development for this and the following centuries whether it is destined to occupy a modest place and to fulfil a specific calling among the churches of the future whether god by this revival of his reformed churches in the netherlands intends to bestow a blessing on his people not only here but likewise abroad the revival of calvinism in the netherlands will appear all the more noteworthy in proportion as one is familiar with the dutch history of the past and with the position once occupied by this small country in the sphere of religious ecclesiastical and political life a position which enabled it to exercise a powerful influence on the churches and the theology of other nations to such as are able to make an estimate of this influence the question put above will perhaps assume a still wider bearing and involve the inquiry whether this revived calvinism may not have some significance for the reformed churches and the reformed theology as a whole and whether it may not perhaps be made useful in stemming the tide of unbelief and anti-christian principles we wish to seek an answer to these questions and for this purpose first endeavour to describe the nature of calvinism in the second place to point out the historical and national importance to which it attained in the netherlands and thirdly to estimate the significance it may have for other countries one calvinism is a specific type among the protestant churches and confessions frequently this type is designated by the name of reformed the words reformed and calvinistic however though cognate in meaning are by no means equivalent the former being more limited and less comprehensive than the latter reformed expresses merely a religious and ecclesiastical distinction it is a purely theological conception the term calvinism is of wider application and denotes a specific type in the political social and civil spheres it stands for that characteristic view of life and the world as a whole which was born from the powerful mind of the french reformer calvinist is the name of a reformed christian in so far as he reveals a specific character and a distinct physiognomy not merely in his church and theology but also in social and political life in science and art the root principle of this calvinism is the confession of god's absolute sovereignty not one special attribute of god for instance his love or justice his holiness or equity but god himself as such in the unity of all his attributes and the perfection of his entire being is the point of departure for the thinking and acting of the calvinist from this root principle everything that is specifically reformed may be derived and explained it was this that led to the sharp distinction between what is god's and the creatures to belief in the sole authority of the holy scriptures in the all-sufficiency of christ and his work in the omnipotence of the work of grace hence also the sharp distinction between the divine and human in the person and the two natures of christ between the external and internal call between the sign and the matter signified in the sacrament 
from this source likewise sprang the doctrine of the absolute dependence of the creature as it is expressed in the calvinistic confessions in regard to providence for ordination election the inability of man by this principle also the calvinist was led to the use of that thoroughgoing consistent theological method which distinguishes him from romanist and other protestant theologians not only in the whole range of his theology but also alongside of this in every sphere of life and science his effort aims at the recognition and maintenance of god as god over against all creatures in the work of creation and regeneration in sin and grace in adam and christ in the church and the sacraments it is in each case god who reveals and upholds his sovereignty and leads it to triumph notwithstanding all disregard and resistance there is something heroic and grand and imposing in this calvinistic conception viewed in its light the whole course of history becomes a gigantic contest in which god carries through his sovereignty and makes it like a mountain stream overcome all resistance in the end bringing the creature to a willing or unwilling but in either case unqualified recognition of his divine glory from god all things are and accordingly they all return to him he is god and remains god now and forever jehovah the being the one that was and is and is to come for this reason the calvinist in all things recurs upon god and does not rest satisfied before he has traced back everything to the sovereign good pleasure of god as its ultimate and deepest cause he never loses himself in the appearance of things but penetrates to their realities behind the phenomena he searches for the noumena the things that are not seen from which the things visible have been born he does not take his stand in the midst of history but out of time ascends into the heights of eternity history is naught but the gradual unfolding of what to god is an eternal present for his heart his thinking his life the calvinist cannot find rest in these terrestrial things the sphere of what is becoming changing forever passing by from the process of salvation he therefore recurs upon the decree of salvation from history to the idea he does not remain in the outer court of the temple but seeks to enter into the innermost sanctuary he views everything sub specie eternitatis if religion be according to the old definition that virtus per quam homines deo debitum cultum et reverentiam exhibent and if theology as the word indicates be a knowledge of god and of all other things as put in relation with and subordination to god then surely with the calvinist religion is most religious and theology most theological this calvinistic principle however is too universal and accordingly too rich and fruitful to allow its influence to be confined to the production of a specific type in the sphere of religion and theology it produces a specific view of the world and life as a whole so to speak a philosophy all its own the moral life also that grows upon the soil of calvinism bears a distinct physiognomy in the first place the fact is noteworthy that contrary to the expectations and predictions of all pelagians calvinism has always promoted a vigorous moral life history has shown that the confession of god's sovereignty and of the absolute dependence of the creature is not only not harmful but greatly conducive to morality the truth is that predestination includes also the predestination of means and election always presupposes an end at which it aims election involves a destiny a life work a moral calling hence moral life among calvinists has always been marked by activity and energy by a restless striving to bring everything under the discipline of the law of god and by so doing to make it subservient to his glory 
it cannot be denied that owing to this morality has sometimes assumed a character of legalism of a certain exaggerated earnestness and severity but even so calvinism has cultivated a number of virtues that have proved of the greatest value for the family for society and the state the love of home temperance cleanliness neatness order obedience chastity earnestness industry economy are virtues that at all times have flourished among calvinistic christians and since calvinism has been accustomed to have its greatest influence with the people it has formed these into a class of solid and industrious citizens which has at all times and everywhere proved the main support of church and state in close connection with this calvinism has developed its own political system and political life undeniably there is a republican and a democratic tendency in calvinism the calvinist fears god alone and no man authority of one creature over another flows exclusively from the sovereign gift of god no power is original with any man or inherent in the person himself it inheres in the office alone for intriguing worship of the creature and fear of man there is no place in calvinism before god all are equal kings and subjects nay even the poor the weak and despised things are chosen by him for the highest ends that no flesh should glory before him to him obedience is due rather and more than to any man hence it is calvinism that has fostered the civil and political liberty of which the netherlands england and america can boast in distinction from spain austria italy and even lutheran germany separation between church and state freedom of religion liberty of conscience freedom in the home and in social life all these are fruits grown on the tree of calvinism in the same manner the principles of calvinism bear in themselves the germ of a specific type in science and art though it must be admitted that this germ has not as yet been fully developed the history of calvinism has been too abruptly terminated it has not as yet found the time and the opportunity to unfold itself in every direction and to draw the lines that logically follow from its principles still the potentialities for development are there whereas the lutheran reformation lacked this broad universality from the beginning the anthropological or soteriological principle of the latter was too narrow for so rich a development and application in consequence of which it was confined to the religious and theological sphere calvinism on the other hand has a world-encompassing tendency being catholic in the best sense of the word the calvinist is fully conscious of this far-reaching tendency and borne on by this principle he aims with calm and unswerving determination at the end which god himself pursues in every creature the glorification of his name two this calvinism found entrance into the netherlands and has shaped the dutch people as it has no other people on earth before the reformation in the latter half of the fourteenth century there was already a religious revival here under the leadership of the well-known gerardus magnus gerd groot died thirteen eighty four this revival however besides being of a positively roman character for the greater part died out in the fifteenth century among the next generation the corruption of morals reached an appalling depth at the beginning of the sixteenth century especially the monasteries were breeding places of iniquity complaints of the immorality the licentiousness the ignorance the despotism and extortion of the clergy were as numerous and as serious here as in other countries only here and there something good survived the reaction among the clergy there were a few favourable exceptions to the general rule of badness humanism represented by gansfort and agricola did not assume a hostile attitude towards the reformation as it did in italy and elsewhere 
in many a hungering and thirsting after reformation had been awakened if anywhere then here it could be said that the soil had been prepared for protestantism the reformation itself passed through three periods the first is at present designated by historians that of the sacramentists or evangelicals and extends from fifteen eighteen to fifteen thirty one as early as the first months of the year fifteen eighteen the fame of luther spread to this country his ninety-five theses were read everywhere the report of his heroic deeds was received with enthusiasm the number of his admirers and supporters increased daily naturally these were called lutherans though of course they were not all lutherans in the later and specific sense of the term and inclined rather to zwingli in their views on the supper in fact zwingli himself had been strongly confirmed in his views by a letter from cornelius hunius a jurist at the hague and led by him to his exposition of est pro significant this period of the dutch reformation is characterized by deep religiousness sacred zeal fiery courage and particularly by the entire absence of the political element according to the testimony of erasmus in fifteen twenty five a large part of the population joined this movement soon however church and state conspired to suppress the heresy edicts were issued and people burned at the stake the evangelical preachers having fled and left the country their followers were left to their fate and deprived of leaders they decreased in number and their enthusiasm cooled down at this juncture however another party appears on the scene to take up the cause of reformation the anabaptists open the second period covering the years from fifteen thirty one to fifteen sixty probably their influence had already begun in fifteen twenty five when the persecution was most fierce but not until fifteen thirty did they begin to be known as a separate distinct party in the year last mentioned jan triebmann returned to amsterdam from emden where he had met melchior hoffmann the anabaptists soon gathered a large following their heroic faith compelled admiration they did not flee from danger but braved it they were men from the people simple and unostentatious they supplied the guidance and direction that were wanting and infused faith and new courage into those that had become fearful their doctrines especially in regard to the sacraments met with sympathy and assent the overstrained feelings to which many had been wrought up by the persecution could not but favour the fanatical elements of the anabaptistic movement it was but natural that the former evangelicals in great numbers nay even as a rule joined the anabaptists the original reformation thus gradually disappeared but against the anabaptists also persecution began to rage they were scattered expelled put to death and moreover divided and consumed by internal dissensions it was menno simons who at this stage gathered the defenceless anabaptists round him bridled their fanaticism and made them seek their strength in quietness if it had not been for another movement which at that time spread to our country the reformation among us would probably have perished at its birth and gradually dwindled away slowly however calvinism was making its way into the netherlands it entered partly from the southern provinces partly it was introduced by those numerous fugitives who had sought a refuge in london ostfriesland cleefsland and the palatinate this calvinism imparted to our people the power not only to endure persecution but also to save and confirm the reformation for this country it was distinguished from both the preceding movements in two respects first it exhibited a strong organizing power the evangelicals and anabaptists had become scattered and divided being destitute of good and firm leadership owing to their lack of unity they suffered from a lack of power the reformed on the other hand were organized immediately 
as early as 1561 they received a confession from Guido de Bray, and from the year 1563 onward assemblies of the churches or synods were held in the southern part of the Netherlands. In the second place Calvinism gave rise to a political movement. The evangelicals and Anabaptists had refrained from every movement in the sphere of politics, allowing themselves to be slaughtered as defenceless sheep. The reformed were possessed of a political as well as a religious conviction, they sought to attach to their cause the nobles and merchants, and already in 1566 resolved upon armed resistance. Prince William of Orange was placed in command, and in 1568 opened the war which after eighty years was to end with the Peace of Westphalia. Henceforward religious and political interests were inseparably united. To declare oneself in favour of the reformed religion and of the Prince of Orange amounted to the same thing. This will explain why, not in reference to the first and second periods, but only in reference to the third, the question has been raised wherein lay the chief motive for the conflict, in religion or in politics, in the attack on faith or in violation of the charters. Though there be room for this question, yet the answer need not be doubtful. The Eighty Years' War was a war of religion, a war for liberty of conscience. The thousands that were tried, convicted, and put to death on account of their faith are sufficient proof of this. No less competent a witness than Alva wrote in a letter of July the 2nd, 1572, to the King of Spain, All the malcontents in Holland demand liberty of conscience and declare that after having been granted this, they will be found willing to pay not only the tenth, but even the fifth penny. Footnote. This is a technical phrase designating the tax of ten percent imposed by Alva in 1572 on all sales of personality. End footnote. Nevertheless, the party of the Reformed, which had thus boldly taken up the contest with Spain, was small in number. According to a rough estimate, no more than one-tenth of the population were Reformed in 1587, and even this tenth part belonged chiefly to the lower classes. Nay, for four years, from April 1572 till November 1576, the contest with Spain was carried on by the tenth part of the population of Holland and Zealand alone but this small Calvinistic group was strong through its faith, powerful through its principles. It knew what it wanted, and was unfaltering and unconquerable in its efforts to obtain it. It increased under the persecution in political, as well as in religious influence and power. By the logic of events, the reformed religion naturally became the supreme religion, the religion of the state. De facto, it was this already in 1583, but formally and legally it became so at the Great Assembly of 1651. This indeed is the unique and truly remarkable feature of Dutch history, that church and state were born simultaneously here, on one and the same day, having been united from the outset. The Reformed Church was the centre of the Commonwealth. The Church and the Republic did not at first exist separately, to be united afterwards. The Republic, rather, was born from the confession of the Church, what Holland has become as a nation, it owes to the Reformation, and more particularly to Calvinism. Here Calvinism has shaped a people, formed a nationality, founded a republic. As a nation, Holland is a son, a foster-child of the Reformation, and for this reason Calvinism, more than anywhere else, has entered into the innermost fibres of the stem of our nationality. It has been the principle of our life, the nerve of our strength, the foundation of our prosperity." The period during which the Church was at its prime was, owing to this close alliance, likewise the time of greatest prosperity for the Republic, and the decline of faith involved the downfall of the State. At about the middle of the seventeenth century the Church and the Commonwealth had reached the height of their power. 
more had been obtained than the boldest faith dared expect at the beginning of the conflict the struggle of the reformed had saved the reformation for holland nay in a certain sense for europe in fifteen seventy four prince william had already written if this country is brought back under the tyranny of the spaniards the true religion will be extinguished everywhere the religious war in our country had significance for the whole of europe in behalf of all protestant christendom the contest was waged here in defence of liberty of conscience and religion against spanish tyranny and romish inquisition the peace of westphalia involved the recognition of the reformation and its indisputable right of existence holland had won for itself a place of honour among the nations of europe the church passed through its most beautiful days theology was cultivated by the foremost scholars the universities which drew to themselves the most eminent talents from at home and abroad became famous and great centres of attraction arts and sciences flourished it was the golden age of literature trade and industry developed and in consequence wealth and luxury increased the land of liberty offered a refuge to all that were in distress of spirit to the persecuted jews to the english dissenters and the french refugees all this prosperity was due either directly or indirectly to the contest which calvinism had so valiantly and perseveringly kept up for eighty years holland had first sought the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all other things had been added unto it in the same manner the church and the commonwealth went down together the first symptoms of decay appear towards the end of the seventeenth century cartesianism and coxianism prepared the way for the subsequent rationalism indolence and luxury began to undermine the old dutch self-respect and energy in the eighteenth century foreign influences likewise made themselves felt in particular english deism and the french neology in consequence of all this the love for the house of orange began to wane the national character degenerated and calvinism withdrew into the more quiet circles of the common people among them to be sure it remained alive and was preserved in its original purity in close alliance with the attachment to the princes of orange and with a deep national sentiment the lower classes of the people retained their originality foreign customs did not with them replace the old national habits the french ideas found no acceptance this part of the people remained what it had always been attached to its faith faithful to its traditions fond of its history it was however unavoidable that under these circumstances calvinism should suffer from one-sidedness and degeneration being almost entirely deprived of firm direction and guidance the church and the schools the pious people and theology became more and more alienated from each other those who loved the faith of the fathers could no longer find satisfaction in the preaching that now prevailed and gathered in conventicles to seek edification for themselves in the same proportion that they felt less at home in their own time they lived back into the past in the world of the old religious literature in the speech and ideas of the fathers the reformed who had once stood at the head of every movement and been the liberals and radicals of their time now became conservative reactionary panegyrists of the old and despisers of the new times they had the reputation of bigots fanatics who sought the darkness and eschewed the light this had the effect of making them still more obstinate and inflexible and of rendering their isolation almost complete being thus shut off from all healthy activity and movement they did not escape the danger of adopting various foreign and erroneous ideas of antinomian labadistic and pietistic origin it was no longer the old high-minded radical calvinism but a calvinism that had become rough harsh unpolished 
without splendour or fire, cold and dry and dead. Yet notwithstanding all this, to the people the honour is due of having safely preserved the treasure of Calvinism, even in this less noble form, and of having transmitted it to our age and to the children of our generation having once through a period of martyrdom and war been identified with the very soul of the people and as it were entered into their blood calvinism could no longer be eradicated by any foreign influence or power god himself has protected it and by so doing indicated that it still has a task to perform in the future at the beginning of the present century calvinism left its hiding-place again the restoration of the country's independence the elevation of the prince of orange to the rank of sovereign ruler and the revival of calvinism were simultaneous the restoration however soon proved not to have been of the nature of an inward reformation and consequently took up an attitude of hostility towards the calvinistic people at first in a contemptuous and pitying manner calvinism was met with a shrug of the shoulders it was no longer deemed worthy of serious discussion or even of opposition being considered a standpoint that had been thoroughly conquered something destined for utter destruction when gradually with the greatest timidity it ventured forward these despisers covered it with derision and when notwithstanding all this it grew in numbers and influence imprisonment and the imposition of fines were resorted to in order to suppress and eradicate so hated a form of faith the state strove to liberalize the nation by means of a neutral church neutral schools and neutral universities the press tried to kill the calvinistic party by systematically ignoring it and burying it in oblivion in the basest manner Piedadic, da costa and Grön van prinstera were abused and the reformed in general were treated as pariahs in their own country in their own church and among their own people they had no access to office or position the various theological tendencies that arose in succession subsisted on foreign ideas imported from france and germany and did not betray the least interest in the common people and its religion they did not understand the latter nor did they endeavour to understand them the first who earnestly sought to study the national reform theology and to trace its principles was the modern professor scholten the gulf between church and school religion and theology between the national spirit and foreign influences continued to exist as deep as ever but god raised up men who allied themselves to the calvinism of the common people and brought it out of its darkness into the clear light of day the rever communicated to our country from switzerland was confined to the higher classes and did not reach the common people nor was it calvinistic from the people itself a revival was born there had always continued to be some ministers who proclaimed the reformed doctrine the secession of eighteen thirty four roused the confessional consciousness from its slumbers and led part of the reformed people to form a separate free organization outside of the established church within the established church itself a calvinistic movement arose under the leadership of grön van prinstera though of noble rank he with his noble heart understood the people and was not ashamed to enter into close contact with them or defend them he succeeded in drawing them from their isolation and in rousing them to activity in the field of politics to wage war against the neutral state schools soon others stood ready to take his place as leaders in a movement which grew and is growing still to an ever-increasing importance in the sphere of the church and of theology by the secession of eighteen eighty six once more a large group of believers withdrew from the organization of the established church the union concluded in eighteen ninety two was the victory after a long battle the crown received after a period of painful toil 
a prophecy perhaps also of a better and more beautiful future. This revival of Calvinism, so surprisingly blessed in its beginnings, is of great importance for the Netherlands. Exaggeration can only harm. The Roman Church embraces still two-fifths of our population. The established Church counts more than two million of souls. Other churches and sects together number half a million of members. After the Reformed Churches shall have attained to local union, their numbers will not exceed six hundred, with a member of about four hundred thousand. This is comparatively small, as it comprises but one eleventh part of the population. To be sure, there are still thousands in the established church that love the Reformed Confession, and hear the doctrines of this confession preached from their pulpits. It would be a great cause for rejoicing if they also could unite with their brethren on the basis of a free and purified church. It is to be expected that in the same proportion as they take a more decisive stand, they will feel less satisfied with the situation, and will be led to consider the breach with the establishment, which for the present they deem sinful, a matter of necessity and duty. At any rate, the reformed churches should never rest until the brethren belonging to the same house are all reunited in love and peace under one roof but even if god should be pleased to grant this grace to his church in holland even then the free reformed churches would probably count no more than six hundred thousand members which is about one-eighth part of our whole population this smallness in point of numbers with its consequent deficiency of power should protect us from overstrained expectations the dread in which many profess to stand from the growing influence of calvinism is not at all justified by these numbers a Calvinistic state, a favoured church, an extension of the reformed religion to the whole nation, are out of the question. The situation has totally changed since the time when these things were possible. Church and state, religion and citizenship, have been separated forever. Unbelief has permeated all classes and alienated a great part of the people from Christianity. To the alarming fact that unbelief is increasing on all hands, the reformed do not close their eyes." They do not wish to repristinate and have no desire for the old conditions to return. They heartily accept the freedom of religion and conscience, the equality of all before the law. As children of their time, they do not scorn the good things which God in this age also has given them. Forgetting the things that are behind, they stretch forward to the things that are before. They strive to make progress, to escape from the deadly embrace of dead conservatism, and to take their place as before at the head of every movement. Even at the present day many in Holland consider them too radical, and suspect them of a secret alliance with socialism. On the other hand, however, no one should allow himself to despise the day of small things. There is a surprising strength in Calvinism. Those that conduct the movement may be few and weak, the principle itself is full of latent energy. So it was in the sixteenth century, and so, comparatively speaking, it is at the present time. In this relation all, of course, depends on faith. The Calvinists are a party of faith, together with their faith they stand and fall. But if God should grant to the Calvinists of our time to lay hold of their faith with the same enthusiasm and self-denial as did their fathers of old, then perhaps a happy future would be in store for them. The preservation of Calvinism in the heart of our people, notwithstanding all discredit and opposition, all the slight and persecution that have been heaped upon it, seems to indicate that God himself has something great in store for it, and intends to make it a blessing for his church in the Netherlands. It appears to me that, in the first place, the significance of this revival lies in this, that it preserves and protects the Christian religion and the Christian church in our country. Calvinism is the religion of the Dutch nation, 
and he that would take our Calvinism away from us would rob us of the Christian religion and prepare the way among us for unbelief and revolution. Other Christian creeds may have a small group of adherents, they do not sway the people, and in general eke out but a scanty subsistence. The theological tendencies that arose in the last century have all been transitory and have disappeared one after the other. Though not without use for their own time, they did not avail to stem the tide of unbelief and protect the nation against the revolutionary powers at work among it. Calvinism, on the other hand, keeps its ground, does not pass away, but stands firm and immovable, and while offering to the people a harmonious system, provides it with a stay it can rest upon. The Dutch people will either be Calvinistic or will cease to be a Christian nation. They are by far too absolute, too resolute, to put up in the long run with anything that is of a hybridical or mediating character. In other countries, where the national bent is less dogmatic and theological, this may be different. In Holland, such a case is hardly conceivable. Moreover, history proves that Calvinism is so closely interwoven with our national life that nothing else will ever be able to take its place. No other confession can ever dislodge the Calvinistic creed from the hearts of the people which it has conquered under the stress of persecution and suffering. Its adoption by the people has been consecrated by blood and tears. It fills the most luminant pages of our history. It is the creative and formative power of our national character. The revival of Calvinism is equivalent to the preservation of the Christian religion itself, as it found entrance here during a most fearful struggle, and it alone can offer a guarantee for its own future existence. In the second place, Calvinism certainly has a future in Holland, for this reason also that, in a less degree perhaps, but nevertheless from the same principle, it has always contended for the liberties of the people, and vindicates this claim even at the present time. Calvinism is both the origin and the safeguard of our religious, political, and civil freedom. When this freedom was assailed in the present century, Calvinism took up the battle in its defence, now no longer under tyrannical Spain, but against the absolutism and omnipotence of the state. Once more during our lifetime, the liberty of conscience, of religion, of the church, of the school, have been reconquered by never-flagging exertion in the face of the most persistent opposition. Official Holland has not shunned the use of a single means, however objectionable, in the council chamber, the press, the pulpit, or the professor's chair, to curtail this liberty and take it from us. Inch by inch we had to reconquer it in every sphere. At present so much has been gained that the equality of all confessions is being recognized more than it used to be, both in the making and in the execution of our laws. But the final goal has not been reached as yet. The fight has to be kept up against the state monopoly in the intermediate and higher education, against the favoured position of the established church and the like. It is to be expected that a still more serious struggle awaits the Calvinism of the future. We are living in a democratic age. There is a universal pressure and demand for extension of the power of the state. The middle parties are one after the other disappearing from the scene. Radicalism and socialism are growing in power. In all likelihood, Calvinism will have to take up the contest with radicalism and socialism in the near future, as once it did with the conservatism and liberalism of the past, and will have to contend for our religious, political, and civil liberties. Now already it is entitled to the honour of having organised an influential group of labouring people for the purpose of warning and protecting them against the fatal theories of unbelief and their social consequences. A third quality in Calvinism that gives promise for the future is its historic sense. In politics, Calvinists, with us, constitute the anti-revolutionary or Christian historic party. 
it is noteworthy that Bilderdijk, that bold opponent of revolutionary principles, used to hold lectures at Leiden on Dutch history, thus gathering round himself a circle of disciples who were to carry on after him the fight for the gospel and against the revolution. Among these, the foremost was Groen van Prinsdere, not only a reformed Christian and a learned statesman, but likewise a historian of the first rank. By his famous handbook of the history of the fatherland, he became a blessing to many. Besides purifying history from the prevailing humanistic and rationalistic views, besides placing it in the only true light of the divine word, besides pointing out the intimate connection between the church and the republic, besides all this, and by means of it, he roused the national spirit, developed the noble love of liberty, and confirmed the people's attachment to the House of Orange. Following his lead, and contending for the rights of the reformed religion, Calvinism could not but be national and historical. Religion, language, and nationality are intimately connected everywhere, but nowhere more closely perhaps than in Holland. A contest that is waged for the first will of necessity benefit the other two. The efforts of a party, therefore, that has its deep roots in the past, that is built on the firm foundation of three centuries of history, bid fair, under the divine blessing, to yield a good harvest for the future. Nor are the signs entirely absent that point to a scientific calling for Calvinism in the future. Prophesying is a difficult task, and it is not given to any man to write a history of the future. Still, it is far from improbable that Calvinism will attain to significance from a scientific point of view. Both the possibility and the necessity for this are clearly existent. The Dutch character demands principles, insists upon a harmonious, consistent system, and is fond of reasoning and drawing conclusions. During the best time of the Republic, science, as well as arts and literature, had attained to a high development and was flourishing. The Calvinistic principle is sufficiently rich and powerful to admit of a special application in the field of science. In this connection it must not be overlooked that the science of our present day has become a powerful weapon in the hands of those who oppose Christianity. A party which would live with its time and desires to take a decisive stand against the prevailing tendencies cannot keep aloof from the scientific battle of principles. It will not rest until over against the theories of unbelief it shall have placed the science of faith, and that not merely in regard to theology but likewise in reference to all other branches of knowledge. It is from the side of science that Christianity is threatened with the greatest danger. Principles rule the world. Words lead to action. Unbelief issues in revolution. This world of science also cannot be conquered in any other way than by faith. The glory of God ought to find recognition in the sphere of science as everywhere else, and it is Calvinism, which here also stands as a champion of the divine sovereignty. 3. It is even more difficult to speak about the future of Calvinism in other countries and churches. One thing is sure, the tendencies prevailing at the present day in the Christian church are not favourable to Calvinism. In some regions there is still attachment to the Reformed Confession, as in Wales, the Scotch Highlands, and in some Presbyterian churches of America. But everywhere else, in France, Switzerland, England, and America, we perceive in the church and in theology an effort often unconscious to modify the old Calvinism in accordance with the so-called demands of the times and of modern science. This fact may elicit our approval or disapproval. Its being a fact does not admit of denial, and we are required to face it frankly. This tendency, which at the present seems to be everywhere in the ascendant, is characterized by this, that it endeavors to represent and commend Christianity from its purely human and natural side, if not to divest it wholly of its supernatural character. 
the doctrine of evolution in its principle is being adopted by christians and applied more or less consistently to christianity the christian religion is not the only true religion but the highest and purest among religions revelation is not something absolutely supernatural but something that has passed through the heart of the best and noblest of mankind and afterwards been deposited in the bible the holy scriptures are not the infallible word of god but contain the word of god and side by side with its divine element the bible has also its human and fallible elements the highest revelation of god in christ coincides with the purest revelation of the human the incarnation of god is identical with or rather is replaced by the deification of man hence the religious and ethical sides of christianity continue to be appreciated whereas the metaphysical elements are rejected with scorn men exert themselves to divest christianity of all these accidental and accessory things and after having confined its essence to what is ethical and religious to represent the rest as worthless and insignificant for faith and practical life in doing this they are consciously or unconsciously influenced by the tagus philosophie of the spirit of our times agnosticism teaches that the supernatural is unknowable physical science confronts us on every side with inflexible laws history finds no place for miracles historical criticism undermines the bible christianity can be vindicated and maintained against all these results of modern science on the condition only that it shall permit itself to be cut loose from its metaphysical background and shall be satisfied with being pure religion all dogmas must submit to a modification the doctrine of scripture of the trinity of election the divinity of christ his satisfaction the church eschatology they all are to be thrown into the crucible in order that the impure dross may be purged away and the pure religious and ethical elements retained in england at the present day this process is in full course of development the whole of theology is to be transformed into a religious ethical christological direction this is the reason why everywhere a demand is heard for a new dogma for a different and better form of christianity for a practical ethical undogmatic social modern christianity the centre of gravity has been shifted from doctrine to life from the object to the subject not faith but love is the essential thing love is the summum bonum the greatest thing in the world the christian religion must prove its worth its truth its right of existence by healing the wounds of humanity by the improvement of society and by the conversion of the heathen formerly men used to be considered souls that were to be saved now they are considered bodies that stand in need of help christianity is to be socialized in order that socialism may become christianized theology and church must lay aside their dogmatic aristocratic hierarchical character and expound the social side of christianity the church is to make place for the kingdom of god to work for this kingdom is the fashion of the day all disposable power is to be developed for this purpose every christian be he young or old must be mobilized and every recruit called to arms peter and paul have had their day john's turn has come that of the apostle of love not the epistle to the romans but the sermon on the mount is the program of original christianity it would not be difficult to point out in detail that our present-day christianity as a whole is really developing in this direction this however is unnecessary and superfluous we need only mention the names of tolstoy in russia asti in switzerland sabatia in france Ritschl in germany Farrar in england drummond in scotland lyman abbott in america to show the substantial truth of the foregoing more than ever before christianity stands under the influence of the ruling philosophy it is being modified in accordance with the opinions of the day it no longer leads but is being led 
in the modern conception of christianity as in so many other things the principle of becoming is substituted from the principle of being in view of this downgrade movement the revival of calvinism is of double importance its significance would not be so great if holland had not experienced the influence of all those modern theological tendencies which at present prevail in other countries the difference is only this that elsewhere these tendencies are just now springing up whereas among us they belong already to the past they have had their season here and have outlived their prime both from a historical and from a dogmatic point of view their unsatisfactory and insufficient character has been demonstrated they have proved unavailing as barriers against the growth of unbelief it has become clear that they offer no firm position amidst the tempests of doubt one by one the various stages can be pointed out through which they have passed in their rapid decline from the pure heights of faith to the depths of infidelity the first step was to summon men to turn from the confession to the scriptures the next to appeal from the scriptures to christ in regard to christ first his divinity next his pre-existence finally also his sinlessness were denied so that nothing remained but the idea of a religious genius who has revealed to us the divine love but even this divine love became an object of criticism and doubt the being of god was found to be unknowable his existence uncertain as a last resort the moral nature of man was made the central position which was thought to be safe from the attacks of evolutionism alas even this moral nature of man was discovered to be non-original a product of development thus many retained nothing but the cheerless creed of materialism apart from the fact however that this downgrade movement offers no secure position against the advance of agnostic science and is compelled to make one concession after another to evolutionism it is just as little satisfactory from a religious point of view there is an immense difference between the conception of christianity of former ages and that of the present time formerly christianity was preeminently religion now it is chiefly morality there was a time when the gospel was considered a means of saving men of giving them comfort in life and death at present it is no more than an instrument used to equip man for his task on earth once heaven was represented as the final goal now it is earth in past time religion was an independent factor whereas now it is merely taken into account for its usefulness in the moral conflict of old religion was essentially mystical a life in communion with god to-day it is mostly moral idealism a life in the service of humanity then the question was what has god done for man at present people ask what is man doing for god in a word formerly man existed for the sake of god of late god is held to exist for the sake of man as a reaction against the two jenseitig ideas of former days there is no doubt much truth in this modern view nevertheless in the long run and as a whole it will prove unsatisfactory as long as a strong sense of energy and activity prevails it may partially satisfy in such a state man resembles the philosopher fichte who in the consciousness of his strength was contented with the ego and viewed the external world as merely so much material for the subject to operate upon in the performance of its duty a schranke to be ever again conquered by human energy but soon the reaction will follow instead of a restless becoming a changeless being will begin to charm us instead of longing for endless labours and calling with lessing and fichte the bliss of heaven langeweile we shall begin to thirst after that rest which remaineth for the people of god 
then we shall no longer hate the conception of being but on the contrary we shall be weary of the eternal process of becoming and in the same manner as fichte later on modified his philosophy the present tendency that sways the christian church will have to be reversed because it no longer satisfies the human heart it has taken the heart out of religion and degraded religion to a servant of morality thus depriving it of its independent value religion is not merely a doing christian works however good and necessary cannot by themselves satisfy the human heart or give peace and rest to the conscience any more than the good works of the romish church have sufficed to do this love cannot supplant faith martha will not be able to deprive mary of the praise of her lord the righteous shall live by faith alone the course which modern christianity seems intent upon pursuing and of which the outcome is hardly a matter of doubt will probably in the end subserve the interests of calvinism sooner or later our eyes will be opened to the fact that this modernizing of christianity while unsuccessful in winning the world has only weakened the faith of believers every compromise between the church and the world between faith and unbelief is to the advantage of our opponents the battle will have to be fought on the line of principles david can conquer goliath in no other way than by facing him in the name of the lord the god of the hosts of israel as soon as this is recognized the beauty of calvinism also will once more be seen and appreciated calvinism gladly honors the good features of the christian labor of our age it by no means favors the idea of fleeing from the world the anabaptist principle of avoidance it does not encourage idleness and somnolence it is active it points out to each man his moral calling and urges him to labor in this with all his might on the other hand it is no less averse to that worldly type of christianity which would supplant the turmoil and clamor the agitation and strain of our times within the pale of christianity calvinism maintains the independent value of religion and does not suffer it to be swallowed up by morality it has a vein of deep mysticism and it cultivates a devout godliness it considers god alone as the highest good and the communion with him as supreme happiness calvinism sets the rest of being over against the restlessness of becoming and makes us feel the pulsation of eternity in every moment of time behind the vicissitudes and transitoriness of this life it points to the unchangeableness of god's eternal counsel thus it offers a place of rest to the weary heart in which god has set eternity and protects man from all over-excitement those that believe shall not make haste calvinism is deeply convinced that the husband as the father of the family the wife as the mother of her children the servant girl in the kitchen and the labourer behind the plough are as truly servants of god as the missionary and minister and sabbath school teacher provided they fulfil their calling faithfully honestly with a heavenly mind and for the lord's sake the domestic and civic virtues which calvinism has nurtured are of inestimable worth and are not to be neglected even for the sake of the most valuable labour in the field of foreign or home missions furthermore no one denies that in the present century calvinism is passing through a serious crisis and is being put to a most severe test there are thousands and the number is daily increasing that have severed every tie which bound them to christianity the confession of strauss is repeated with ever-increasing boldness we are christians no longer many deem religion the greatest disease and aberration of the human mind there are others who seek compensation for the loss of religion in the cult of humanity in devotion to their duties in love to their neighbour in the service of beauty in the worship of the ideal in their admiration of the universe or who even to appease their dissatisfied spirit have taken recourse to spiritism and theosophy to the religion of mohammed or buddha 
Christianity and Calvinism are confronted with the question whether, in the true sense of the word, they are Catholic and universal, whether they are adapted to all regions and circumstances, whether their usefulness may be limited to the time that is past or may extend to the future, whether in this century of power also they will be able to maintain themselves over against the civilization that more and more emancipates itself from all religion, whether in the future, as in the past, they will prove a blessing to humanity. This crisis is very serious. There is none that can foretell the issue. Nevertheless, Calvinism is sufficiently pliant and flexible to appreciate and appropriate what is good in our age. It is opposed on principle, to be sure, to the powerful spirit and the prevailing tendency of this age. Still, it has some elements that are closely allied with it, and may serve to accredit it to the present generation. It is thoroughly intellectual, possessing a far-reaching principle, a consistent system. It knows what it wants, it offers truth instead of doubt, firmness and assurance over against the ever-shifting opinions of the day. It involves a comprehensive view of the world and of life, and for this reason is adapted not merely to religious and ecclesiastical, but likewise to ethical, social and political life. It is democratic and champions the interests of the people, and strengthens their influence with the governments. It loves liberty and never fails to come to the defense of the freedom of the press and of conscience, of art and of science. It is social and prides itself upon having produced a class of solid, industrious citizens who, in accordance with the prayer of Agua, are protected from both riches and poverty and are fed with the bread of their portion. It is active and energetic, averse to all sinful passivity and complacent rest, urging upon man the fulfillment of his calling imposed by God. Even the philosophic systems of this century contain many elements which Calvinism may turn to an apologetic use. The agnostic philosophy falls in with the Calvinistic doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God, of the impenetrableness of his counsel, of the hidden character of the voluntas beneplaciti, of the finiteness of the human faculty of knowing. The rigorous moral principles of Kant serve to reveal more clearly the depravity of human nature, das radical böse, having its seat in the human heart. The pessimistic philosophy confirms the doctrine of sin, and through Schopenhauer has maintained most emphatically the necessity of regeneration as the only means of deliverance from the power of sin. Almost every system that has been developed during the present century contributes proof to the reformed denial of the indeterminism of the will, and helps to affirm the causal connection of the laws and ordinances of God. If one were to trace in the philosophical systems of our time, the various lines in which they correspond to Calvinism, in order thereby to defend its doctrinal system, the results would richly repay his labor. Another feature which serves to commend Calvinism consists in this, that it allows of various minor shades, and in the application of its theological and ecclesiastical principles, avoids all mechanical uniformity. Lutheranism, strictly speaking, has produced but a single church and a single confession. Calvinism, on the other hand, has found entrance into many nations and founded many and multiform churches. It created not one but a number of confessions, and yet the latter are all but copies of one another. The Zwinglian confessions bear a different character from those of Calvin. The Catechism of Geneva differs considerably from that of Heidelberg. The Belgic confession is quite distinct from the Westminster Standards. The Episcopal Church has been recognized as a Reformed Church as much as the Presbyterian Churches. This remarkable fact shows that Calvinism has room for the display of individuality, for that difference in character which must exhibit itself among the various nationalities.
there is a variety of gifts and a difference of insight may not work harm but be of advantage to no individual man or individual church has it been given to assimilate truth in all its fullness truth is too rich and manifold for this only in company with all the saints can we understand the breadth and length and depth and height of the love of christ this will apply to the churches of the future also robinson spoke to the pilgrim fathers brethren god alone knows whether i shall ever taste the joy of seeing you again but whatever he may be pleased to bring on us this i would bind on your hearts that you honour me no longer as your leader than you will observe me honouring christ as my own leader if the lord be pleased to lead you through life through any other instrument then follow him we have not yet arrived at the goal there are still treasures in the scriptures the knowledge of which has remained hidden to us all the misery of the presbyterian churches is owing to their striving to consider the reformation as completed and to allow no further development of what has been begun by the labour of the reformers the lutherans stop at luther and many calvinists at calvin this is not right certainly these men in their time were burning and shining lights nevertheless they did not possess an insight into the whole of god's truth and if able to arise from their graves they would be the first to accept gratefully all new light brethren it is absurd to believe that during the brief period of reformation all error has been banished as it is to believe that the christian gnosis has at one step completed its task calvinism wishes no cessation of progress and promotes multiformity it feels the impulse to penetrate ever more deeply into the mysteries of salvation and in feeling this honours every gift and different calling of the churches it does not demand for itself the same development in america and england which it has found in holland this only must be insisted upon that in each country and in each reformed church it should develop itself in accordance with its own nature and should not permit itself to be supplanted or corrupted by foreign ideas the tendency now prevailing in england and america of looking towards germany as the centre of theological science can but work harm for both the reformed church and the reformed theology in this manner all sorts of heterogeneous principles and ideas find an entrance into the churches and schools which thus are led to undermine their own foundation as of every nation that honours its independence so it is the calling of every church to guard and preserve its individual character and instructed by the teachings of history to labour for the church and theology of the future this demand is not born from exclusivism the reformed have never been narrow-minded at marburg Zwingli far excelled luther in brotherly love the calvinists have never repulsed the lutherans but always recognised them as brethren calvinism though laying claim to being the purest religion and to having most thoroughly purified christianity of all romish admixture has never pretended to be the only true christian religion even in the papal church it has been recognised the religio et ecclesia christiana its broad and mild recognition of baptism shows that it has never denied the catholicity of christianity calvinism is a specific and the richest and most beautiful form of christianity but it is not co-extensive with christianity the church will not attain to the full unity of faith and of the knowledge of the son of god until as the body of christ she shall have reached her fullest growth and all members of her body shall be fully developed until this time every church the reformed church included has to guard what is committed unto it that the truth may be transmitted pure and intact and if possible still further purified and reformed to the succeeding generations nobody can tell whether dutch calvinism is still destined to exert influence on the future of calvinism in other countries a dutch writer at any rate will certainly be excused from expressing an opinion on this point 
at the synod of dort the reformed churches of the netherlands recognized the communion of saints and in the struggle with arminianism inasmuch as it concerned the principles and foundations of calvinism refused to decide the issue without the assent of the whole of reformed christianity such a communion of saints still exists at the present day here and everywhere the struggle is one struggle for the sovereign grace of our god for the authority of his word for the honour of christ perhaps the unexpected revival of calvinism in the netherlands will elsewhere strengthen the faith of the brethren increase their confidence fire their zeal and encourage them to remain firm in their battle for the lord end of the future of calvinism by herman babing